Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, significant changes to Minnesota's medical cannabis program, sex education in Minnesota schools, and former Minnesota Viking and Golden Gopher football player Mark Dusbabic. But first... Minnesota is now even more in the abortion spotlight in the upper Midwest, about two weeks after the U.S. Supreme Court in the Dobbs case struck down the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision legalizing abortion, putting the issue back in the domain of the states. A Ramsey County judge in Minnesota struck down the state's 24-hour waiting period for abortions and other controversial measures, arguing they violate abortion rights embodied in the state constitution. It's an interesting legal and political conundrum, particularly in this election year. And MNN's Bill Werner talked with Hamlin University legal and political analyst David Schultz about that. Scott, it was back in 1995 that the Minnesota Supreme Court, in a case called Doe v. Gomez, ruled that the state constitution guarantees the right to an abortion. And Professor Schultz says for years he was wondering whether someone would use that high court ruling to try to expand abortion rights in Minnesota. And approximately two years ago, um, a series of, or a group of people, including some doctors and so forth, challenged a variety of of laws in Minnesota, laws that required parental notification or 24-hour waiting periods for women before they could terminate a, a pregnancy or requirements that women had to use a hospital. Ramsey County um, District Court judge struck all those laws down and said the basis for the decision was the Gomez, that based upon Gomez, based upon the fact that the Minnesota Supreme Court had said that the state constitution protects a constitutional right to terminate a pregnancy, the judge threw out quite a few of the Minnesota laws at this point. And why did this not happen earlier? Do you have a feel for that? Because this issue has really been dividing people for some time. I think the reason was because Roe was still in place and that ultimately um, Roe versus Wade guaranteed a right to terminate a pregnancy. And I think there was a sense in which there's no need to do any kind of court challenges at the state level uh, that, uh, as one possibility. Another possibility might have been the fact that groups that wanted to challenge it uh, were waiting for the right opportunity. And with that, we have to say, perhaps with the right judges um, on the, uh, in the Minnesota courts. And so there's a variety of reasons why. Again, it's, it really is curious, though, as to the reasons for ultimately why there wasn't a challenge earlier. But the timing here, I think, was interesting because I do think the judge in Ramsey County Court was waiting for the Dobbs opinion. As I mentioned, this is a case uh, that was been hanging around in Minnesota for about two years, um, going up and down in terms of questions about does the court have authority to hear it, not hear it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think once the Dobbs opinion um, was issued, that gave clarity to a Ramsey County judge regarding potentially what he could do in one of his rulings. And so I do not see um, a coincidence between uh, what the Supreme Court did in Dobbs and what the and what the district court judge did in Ramsey County. So really the United States Supreme Court then throwing this back to the jurisdiction of the states unequivocally 
that you, you think then gave the district judge uh, a, a confidence that in fact this this issue was now within our purview, fully within our purview in the state of Minnesota. I think absolutely correct, and also needed to see what the Dobbs opinion said. Mm-hmm. Had, for example, Dobbs court gone so far as to say that a fetus is a person and therefore has constitutional rights, that could have changed entirely what the Ramsey County District Court did. You say that if if the high court had declared that a fetus, the United States Supreme Court I'm talking about now, had basically declared that a fetus is a human being, living human being, then how would that have potentially affected what Minnesota could or could not have done, and how would the results um, of, of these laws that were struck down, such as the 24-hour waiting period, parental notification, and the others, how might that have been different? If the fetus is a constitutional person, uh, then perhaps uh, a fetus is entitled to protection under, let us say, homicide or murder laws in the, in the state of Minnesota, mm-hmm. um, and therefore um, allowing any laws to go forward that would protect a woman's right to an abortion might very well mean what laws that that are allowing for for murder so so mm-hmm. you know we are speculating of course on yes, this one yes but, but a much clearly, different situation um, it, yeah it, it would change things quite a bit in terms of what the judge potentially could have ruled and of course the minnesota judge did rule professor and now the question is what will attorney general keith ellison do will he appeal this ruling we know that ellison is a staunch supporter of abortion rights but there are those who criticize him, saying he is not doing an adequate job of enforcing the state laws which the people's elected representatives at the Minnesota legislature passed into law. Uh, what do you think he's going to do? He's, he's in a dilemma here because, like I said, he is supposed to defend the laws of the state. He's personally opposed to it. So that puts him in one dilemma. There's also another dilemma here, too, is that he's up for re-election. And he is facing probably a very close election. Remember four years ago of the four Democrats who won statewide office, his was the closest. It was a very, very tight race. And so he's facing a tough race again this year, and he has to be thinking about that in terms of how does his decision play out electorally. But I'm also going to give you a different way of thinking about it, too. Okay. If he doesn't appeal the case, after 60 days, the district court opinion is final, and that's it. Um, that's it. Although there are questions at that point regarding um, is it a statewide precedent, but it's over. Let's say he does appeal it, thinking, well, maybe I want to get the Minnesota Supreme Court to do this. Well, by the time the Court of Appeals hears the case, decides, the Minnesota Supreme Court maybe hears the case and decides it. It could be well past election. It could be in the next year. And he's got to think about whether or not um, he's going to be reelected as attorney general. Does he take the chance of keeping an open case? And if he loses it, it turns it over to a new attorney general who who may view this issue entirely differently. So there is a lot of, I'd say, political and ideological risk surrounding what the attorney general has to decide. As Hamlin University Professor David Schultz. Scott? Thank you, Bill. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Minnesota Rural Electric Cooperatives. Who are we? We're your neighbors, co-workers, and friends. That's right, we live and work in the community too. Because of that, we're committed to making sure our electric services stay reliable, affordable, and safe. 
Throughout the state, Minnesota Electric Co-ops work independent of each other, but with the same goal, provide power to Minnesota. You have so many other things to worry about. Your electricity isn't one of them. Minnesota Rural Electric Cooperatives, bringing power to the people of Minnesota. Change a light bulb, save some green. Just replace traditional light bulbs with energy-efficient bulbs and fixtures. If you're like most people, 20% of your home electric bills go directly to lighting. Every light we switch to one bearing the government's Energy Star label uses at least two-thirds less energy than older bulbs. Such a light will save more than $30 in energy costs over its lifetime. Brighten your environmental future from the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. Starting August 1st, the state's medical cannabis program will offer gummies and chews to approved patients. I recently spoke with Director of the Office of Medical Cannabis, Chris Tholkis, about this interesting development. So the Minnesota Medical Cannabis Program is adding uh, some edible products in the form of gummies and chews. So we won't be having, you know, sometimes when people think of edibles, they think of brownies or cookies or other food products. That will not be happening in the medical program. We'll just have sort of the gummy or chew products available for patients starting August 1st. Uh, And what are some of the benefits of these types of products versus what's been offered up to this point? Sure. So, you know, previously we have offered things like uh, tablets, capsules, um, tinctures, vaping, and, you know, every patient is different, and so their needs are different. Um, what gummies offer are, in particular for folks who need more of an extended um, uh, coverage of medication, um, typically we would offer a tablet or a capsule to those folks. And some people have difficulty swallowing, for example, and so a gummy or chew is going to be better for them because they can chew it up and almost dissolve it before they swallow versus trying to swallow a capsule or a tablet. You know, listeners obviously probably aware of the fact that uh, we've got some uh, gummies and products like that that contain THC that have been uh, legalized throughout the state here. Is this the same thing or are we talking about something different? You know, our products are, um, you know, the, the product concept, I guess, is the same thing as uh, and being an edible category product. Um, I guess what distinguishes the medical cannabis products is that our products are um, very precisely laboratory tested. We have very strict limits on uh, contaminants, pesticides, metals. Um, we have parts per million limits on all of those things, uh, and we... Uh, the Minnesota Department of Health approves the testing labs. So we have two testing labs that are approved to test products for our programs. And we actually review every single certificate of analysis on those products before they become available for sale to patients. So there, there is some peace of mind, I think, when taking our products. Uh, as we mentioned early in the conversation, these uh, products will be available starting on August 1st. Um, if somebody who is in the program wants to sign up for edibles or, or chewables, what do they need to do to get the process started? So they'll need to have a consultation with their pharmacist. Um, every time a patient moves to a new product, it's very similar to going to a, a regular pharmacy. You need to have a pharmacist consultation on that new product. 
And so edibles will be considered a new product. So they'll need to directly contact either Green Goods or Rise, the two dispensaries that, that are available in Minnesota, and they can schedule a consultation with a pharmacist. And they are taking appointments for those right now um, so that you can sort of have that consultation and be pre-approved and ready to pick up products on August 1st when they become available. Chris, what kind of demand was there uh, for these kinds of products for, from patients? Was it pretty high? Is that, why, uh, is that why they've been instituted? Sure. So our program has what we call a petition process that we open up every summer. Um, so from June 1st to July 31st, we, uh, anyone can submit a petition to us uh, to consider either adding a new qualifying condition or to add a new delivery method. And edibles were requested to be added to the program. And I think they'd been a asked for in the past and uh, it did not make it through. And this time there was a, a really good justification. And, you know, the science is there as in the supplement industry. Um, gummies and chews are, are more and more common as a delivery method in the supplement industry. They're just more widely available. We know more about that as a delivery method. And um, so this time through that uh, petition process last summer, edibles were added to the program. I know that the program has been in place now for a number of years. I'm curious how many Minnesotans are, are uh, registered users in the medical cannabis program statewide? Yeah, we have about 38,000 patients in our program right now that are, are act, considered active patients. Well, that's, uh, that's pretty astonishing. It's really grown over the years, hasn't it? It really has. And it's just not slowing down. I think that the more comfortable people get and the more that they see that the products are, are effective and have therapeutic benefits, there just continues to be growing interest. Thank you to my guest, Chris Tholkis, Director of the Office of Medical Cannabis. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. Are parents across Minnesota in support of sex education being taught in our schools? It's a question MNN's Tasha Radel tries to find an answer for. Today we're diving into the second tier of a U of M report, the 2022 Minnesota Adolescent Sexual Health Report. Last week on Minnesota Matters, the focus was on teen pregnancy, birth, and STI rates around the state. Today we're going to be discussing whether or not Minnesota parents support sex education curriculum being taught in our schools. Joining me again this week is Dr. Jill Ferris, Director of Adolescent Sexual Health Training and Education at the University of Minnesota. Jill, before we dive into this portion of the survey results, can you again give us an overview of what's behind the 2022 Minnesota Adolescent Sexual Health Report? So yes, as you said, every year we have a report that comes out that details the health of young people in our state as it relates to adolescent sexual health. And so we look at this report, um, we look at pregnancy, teen pregnancy, teen birth, we look at um, sexually transmitted infections, and then we kind of look at things through a lot of different lenses. So we look at things in terms of racial and ethnic disparities, we look at things by geographic disparities in terms of rural versus suburban versus urban young people. Um, and then we also have a section of our report this year that's dedicated to 
um, parental support for comprehensive sexuality education, which is based on a survey that was done by researchers in our division with parents um, all throughout the state of Minnesota. So our, our report is very comprehensive and broad um, as it relates to young people and the sexual health of those young people. And we uh, are focused on teens for this report and the way that our kind of our data systems uh, define teens as 15 to 19. So we know obviously there is, we're missing some um, some younger teens, 10 to 14, and we're missing kind of that older uh, young adult population of 20 to 24. But everything that I'll talk about today and everything that's in our report is focused on those 15 to 19 year olds. So this week we're focusing on whether or not parents support comprehensive sexuality education being taught in schools. Now this includes information about puberty, reproductive anatomy, health relationships, and sexual abuse prevention. So how are Minnesota parents feeling, Dr. Ferris? Yeah, so we did um, a survey very similar to this back in 2007, where we surveyed parents to find out what they felt about comprehensive sexual health education in schools. And we thought like it was felt like it was time to repeat that survey, wondering, you know, a lot of things have changed since 2007. And we kind of wondered if the level of support among parents would be the same or if it will would have changed in those 15 years. So what we found is that we had a very high level of support 15 years ago, and actually that support has only grown in the 15 years since we did that, that last survey. So we found that 90% of parents, um, and this was parents um, across demographics from various communities with various incomes and education levels, um, religious beliefs, um, political beliefs. I mean, it was really a wide swath of people. We actually did this um, survey at the state fair last summer. So we reached people from all over the state. And we found that 90% of parents that we surveyed said that their young people should be taught sexual health information in their schools. And so that was... um, that was great. We were happy to, of course, see that. And I think one of the things that was also a really positive trend for us was to see the support continue in all eight congressional districts in Minnesota. So we also broke this down by regions of our state, and those regions are the congressional districts that we have. And so we found broad, wide-ranging support for this, even in, you know, um, in, in all of the eight congressional districts, um, more conservative to more liberal, um, all of them had wide support for teaching sexual health education in schools. Dr. Ferris, talking to your kids about sexual health can be a little nerve wracking. This is a hard topic. Maybe, I guess I'm saying maybe it's uncomfortable, but nonetheless, what is a good way to engage in this conversation with your kids? Do you have any tips or advice? Yeah, it's such a good question. I think the thing that I always tell you know parents and families is that they have a super important role to play among the young people in their lives. Young people don't always give the impression that they care what their parents or adults in their lives think, uh, but they do. They do care what we think, and they are looking to us to, you know, find out what we have to say about this. And so um, the kind of things that young people might be learning about sexual health, they might be learning things from their friends or from the Internet. And in that case, parents and guardians definitely want to fill in the gaps and provide, you know, uh, information. But even if a young person was getting really, you know, great, medically accurate, comprehensive sex education from somewhere, that education isn't teaching values or beliefs or morals. That's not what it's intending to do. That's that's the job of a family, right? And so that is a place where I always say um, 
it you can start early and you can start small and anything that you do to start talking about this with your children is a step um, on the road to raising a sexually healthy adult and so um, this does not have to be and it probably shouldn't be um, the talk right I think a lot of us think about it that way or maybe we were raised that way where our parents had one conversation with us and it shouldn't be the talk it should be lots of little talks um, over time and there's lots of ways to bring it up and to have a conversation with your kids I think using kind of those teachable moments as we would call them when things happen in the news or there's something going on with a celebrity or there's something that's going on in your kids school or in the community just asking them like hey have you heard about that what do you think about that what do your friends think about that and really just using that as a jumping off point to have a conversation um, I think another really good strategy is to talk about things in the car <laughs> uh, you're both looking straight ahead you don't have to make eye contact and you can, uh, you've got your kid in this captive moment in the car, at least for a little while. And so we think car conversations are a really nice way for parents to bring something up in a way that um, maybe brings the anxiety level uh, down a little bit, both for teens and for adults. Thanks again to my guest, Dr. Jill Ferris, Director of Adolescent Sexual Health Training and Education at the University of Minnesota. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Adopt U.S. Kids presents Multiple Choice Parenting. Your daughter just had her first breakup. Do you A, put yourself in her shoes? How could he do this to you? And for Sheila, she, she has split ends. B, console her. Oh, sweetie. This is going to happen a lot. Four, maybe five more times before you get married. C, take charge. Got to get this all straightened out. Keep a little talking to, man to man, mano a mano. Hey, Steve. Is now a good time? No? Okay, no problem. Bye. Or D, help her find a new boyfriend. I know a great place to meet boys. The internet. Nice, single boys. Never mind. How about some ice cream? As a parent, there are no perfect answers. But you don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. For more information on how you can adopt, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. Former Minnesota Viking and Golden Gopher football player Mark Dusbabic of Fairbo has been a longtime rules official on the PGA Tour, and he's back in his home state of Minnesota to help officiate the 3M Open at the TPC Twin Cities course in Blaine this week. The top pro golfers in the world will be taking part, and Dusbabic and his colleagues will be monitoring and regulating most every step of their play. Eminent Sports Director Mike Grimm spoke with Deuce Bobbick, who lives in California, about coming back to Minnesota for this annual event. So now you get, I guess, your home state tournament here, the 3M Open now. What did that start in 2018, 2019? Um, of course, it was a Champions or Tour Champions event before that. Um, we mentioned already that how, how busy it can be because you got, I'm sure, friends and former Gopher teammates. I think you got dinner with Ray Hitchcock, it sounds like, uh, coming up as well, one of our all-time favorites. Um, but then it becomes the business of, of, of golf. But do you take a moment to say, this is great for Minnesota golf. It's great for my home state, and it's great for you uh, as a Minnesotan to be back, you know, officiating here. Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I love it. In fact, I I um 
I I want to see more people like uh, Randall McDaniel. I can't wait to see him. I'll, I'll pro probably see him out there at some point. And, and Rich Gannon, I think, is going to be out there as well. So so um, I look forward to seeing those guys and just catching up. Um, it's 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 um, but you're here to work and yeah. and. and it's just so great for the state of Minnesota because I know growing up here how important golf is here and I know how much people love golf here and and I just am glad to see that the PGA Tour finally recognized that and understands that we have a huge market here and we have whether it's the fortune 500 companies or the popularity of the sport with with uh, the general public here but um, they need to stay here. They need to continue to grow it here. Um, so there's a plethora of great golf courses to play here. Yeah. Uh, whether you're going up north, uh, we used to do family vacations up in <laughs> the Brainerd area, and yeah. it had to center around where the golf course was. Or some of my friends who are members at various clubs here that yeah. I get to go enjoy. And obviously, with the Ryder Cup in 2016, and then uh, another one coming up, were you were you involved? Do you get involved with the Ryder Cup? Do you get to take part? What a great event, right? Yeah, the Ryder Cup is run by the PGA of America and the um, well, the DP World Tour now. But yeah. now that we've had a little um, a buy-in with a, a partnership with the DP. Um, so we are going down that road. I don't know. We probably will have an involvement later, but mm -hmm. right now it's it's their event, and yeah. um, so I don't work. That so, way. but you have you been able to watch or attend some? Oh, yeah. I've never attended. I, I'd really, you know, it's when I travel two hundred some days a year that I want to go. It's good. Not it's good to watch right on TV sometimes. But right? I will yeah. watch. Yeah, because yeah. I'm a golf fan. I'm a golf. Right. I'm a. I love the game of golf, and so I, I will. I, I sat there all day yesterday and watched with my dad the the Open Championship. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm still a fan of it. Um, and so that I think 2029. I think it was 28, but COVID has pushed everything back years. So I think that's back to uh, the Ryder Cup is back to Minnesota here in 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 20. Uh, 29. Um, you, you mentioned you love I golf. I might be retired by then. You, it so. might be. <laughs> well, then, then you could, uh, yeah, you could be, even, even come and attend it. Um, is, is, um, did you, were you a golfer? You mentioned you golfed when you were growing up. Were you a good golfer? Do you still golf? Do you still swing the sticks? Is that kind of why you had the passion for the game? I, um, I was decent. I mean, I wouldn't say I was great. I was. Yeah. I've always kept a single handy, single digit handicap. I got down to as low as one point two. I think was Ooh. my lowest. Yeah. And um. And but listen, these guys that are out here are just beyond. It's crazy. I, right? But I was more of a recreational buddy. Um, golf yeah not so what do you think fed into your your uh your feeling of passion to the game and to to lead you to this path to to do what you're doing now i think it's still just the the competitive uh sports background that yeah. i have i'm i'm uh i'm very competitive and i like the i like the challenge of putting it all on me and trying to play play a certain way and 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 putting the pressure on myself to, um, to perform. That's former Viking and Gopher linebacker Mark Deuce-Bobbick of Fairbowl with MN Sports Director Mike Grimm. That's going to do it for us for this week. Thank you so much for listening, and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station. station.